Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. This is our first podcast episode, so we're going to be winging it a little bit. Or actually a lot, I guess, because we've never done this before. Introductions seem like a traditional place to start. Um, this kind of feels like doing an icebreaking activity with someone I've known my whole life, which is a little weird, but I'll go for it. I mean, technically you're introducing yourself to the internet as well, and they don't know you, so how about you say hi? That is true. Um, okay, so as I said earlier, my name is Lulu. I use she, her pronouns. In quarantine, my obsessions have kind of been medieval Irish literature and Marvel comics because I am vast and contain multitudes. My name is Pi. like the food, yes, I know it's kind of weird, but it's an old family nickname, and I also use she, her pronouns. My quarantine obsessions have been finally finishing the published Song of Ice and Fire books and binging the horror podcast The Magnus Archives because I guess I really like long-form things. That is, that is true. You did pick the longest media to get into. I sure did. Um, so, why are we recording a podcast, you might ask, hypothetical listener? Um, this is mostly because we tend to have a lot of long and nerdy conversations about media that we figure we might as well record and put on the internet. We are also currently separated since I'm at college studying English to better psychoanalyze my favorite characters, and Lulu is at home on break from her semester reading X-Men comics. And at some point we just decided to start a podcast because we thought it would be fun. Um, however, we are people who have come prepared, not only with a meager script, but with a purpose. And that is to talk about Selkies. Selkies, in case you don't know, are an Irish myth and they're women who can also turn into seals. However, they rely on their magic seal sins to do this. And if that's stolen, say by a terrible man who wants to make her his wife, which happens in many stories, they remain trapped in their human form forever. Uh, both being mythology nerds, Lulu and I are a little obsessed with Selkie stories and the way they're both tragic and kind of beautiful and also involve the ocean and magic, which are our many obsessions. Yeah, I think being a mythology nerd who grew up by the ocean, I always thought Selkies were a very cool concept. Um, specifically, we want to compare and contrast the depiction of Selkies in two pieces of media primarily, which are The Folk Keeper by Franny Billingsley and the animated children's movie Song of the Sea. The Folk Keeper is a 1999 young adult, middle grade-esque, I say-esque because it's sort of in between, historical fantasy novel. It's um, about a young girl named Corinna Stonewall, who's an orphan. She exists in sort of this pseudo-historical past, um, which is kind of like our world, but with some magic. And she has disguised herself as a boy, so she can become someone called a Folk Keeper, who kind of tends these malevolent magical creatures and keeps them from like harming humans. And she lives a pretty regular life as an orphan foundling who has disguised herself into the gender to deal with malevolent beings can kind of live until one day a mysterious dying man visits her at the foundling house and hires her to come tend the folk at his island. And there are Selkies, which is a little bit of a spoiler. So just a warning, we will be discussing spoilers for both of these pieces of media. Yes, if you like don't want to be spoiled, then I would recommend go reading The Folk Keeper and watching The Song of the Sea, which are both excellent, and then coming back here where you can talk to where you can listen to us talk about how they're excellent. 
yeah, you can just hit that pause button. We'll still be here, or at least our disembodied recorded voices will be. Anyway, so the Folk Keeper, um, it does have Selkies. I would consider it like a big spoiler to say there are Selkies actually. Um, Corinna does not know much about her parentage or where she came from at the start of the book. She has a last name, which is Stonewall, but that is not her family name. It's basically given to her just because she's like really stubborn. And she has spent the last couple of years of her life disguised as a boy because she desperately wants to avoid the life of being a serving girl in this kind of patriarchal historical society. And she wants to be a folk keeper. Um, the novel is really interesting because it's actually written in this like epistolary format, which is like her um, folk keepers book where she kind of writes down the duties she performs to keep the folk um, away from humans and kind of calm. The folk are um, an interesting concept. I thought they were really creepy. I liked them a lot. Um, I read this yeah, book when I was much younger. Creepy. Yeah, I read this book when I was much younger. So I reread it for this podcast because I remember there were silkies and I was like, I think this would be interesting. But primarily you first get introduced to the folk and they're very creepy. Like they almost are kind of like this horror thing. They live underground in these tunnels um, and they kind of have to be kept down and placated by... Um, gifts of food otherwise they'll do things like spoiling the milk and sickening the livestock so Corinna's job is basically to keep track of the folk and the offerings that are given to them um and especially around like feast days or saints days the folk get really agitated so the book starts out as just being like a diary kind of a list of the food that she has given the folk but it's also the only place that she kind of writes down all her secrets like the fact that she is actually a girl the fact that there are all these mysteries around her past um, and what she encounters when she goes off to her new job as the folk keeper at this estate called Cliff's End on this mysterious island. Um, the folk are quite creepy. They're described as like, I think, mostly wet mouth and teeth at one point, which is just like excellent and very, very creepy. Yes, um, I, I was... very much enjoyed the portrayal of the folk in this book because although it is a Selkie book, um, it's called The Folk Keeper, obviously, and Corona's main interactions with like magical beings throughout much of the book are the folk um and i thought that the folk are probably some of the creepiest fairies that i've ever read about because the author kind of takes the idea of like appeasing fairies with gifts of food and really dials it up to 11 because unless they appease the folk with like say eggs and meat and pastries on feast days, the folk will come out of their cabins and eat people. And in fact, it is mentioned later in the book that they used to perform human sacrifice, which is quite a lot scarier than like your garden variety, like friendly fairy that will fix your roof in exchange for a bit of milk. So although the book is mostly focused on selkies, I found that the author's interpretation of fairies was also very unique. And especially it kind of veered a bit more towards horror than I heard it being actually, because I, also had not read this book um, since I was quite a lot younger. And so when I opened it up and they started talking about how uh, the humans used to sacrifice people to the folk. And if you spend time down in the darkness, you'll be eaten or go mad. I was like, whoa, I do not remember being quite so freaked out by this book the last time I read it. Yeah, so I mentioned that um, one of my quarantine obsessions was like medieval Irish literature. And I'm not exaggerating, like that's something I find really interesting. He has um, read The Toyn multiple times. Yeah, I, I have read The, the Toyn Bo Kulinga, which is um, this early Irish piece of literature. It's kind of like the Iliad. We're going on a tangent. I'm going to stop myself before I go off on a tangent with The Toyn. But um, <laughs> I'm like, can I save that for a later episode? That is true. Um, and 
so I'm pretty familiar with kind of these traditions of like Celtic and British folklore. Um, and the folk, I think, kind of draw on that because there's this idea of sort of like malevolent or mischievous fairy creatures that like you might leave like milk out to to appease. But I think Franny Billingsley kind of takes them and like makes them much creepier because they're very animalistic. Um, Corinna's job is to like keep them from eating people or like um, kind of sickening the livestock as I mentioned and stuff and it is pretty creepy but um didn't you mention to me that when we were watching the Mandalorian you said that you pictured um that monster that he was riding as looking a lot like the folk because it was also mostly mouth and teeth oh okay I hate that you brought that up because I wasn't gonna ruin the like literary analysis mood of the podcast by bringing that up but when I was watching the Mandalorian season one there are like those creatures they ride around in the desert I think they're called I think they're called blurbs yeah, blurgs. Star Wars always must give their species the weirdest possible names. And like their body is like entirely mouth, basically. And I had been reading the folk keeper around the time I started watching the Mandalorian, and I was like, oh, the folk and these creatures are both mostly mouth. So but so basically, um the initial premise of the folk keeper is that it's her job to kind of keep down the folk and tame them and like make sure that they are kind of settled and not like, you know causing ill magic to <laughs> yes and Corinna becomes the folk keeper of this big estate called Cliffsend um which has a lot more folk than the previous place that she's worked at and also has a lot of people with agendas and secrets and it has a very spooky gothic mansion vibe and although the book starts out mostly being about folk it's when Corinna arrives at this new estate that the Selkies become, to become more of a part of the story and you begin to realize that Corinna herself is not quite as human as you think she is. So yeah, Cliff's End is a seaside estate. And in addition to having the regular kind of folk, capital F folk, who live underground and are kind of creepy and malevolent, they also have these much more mysterious and I would say maybe kind of less malevolent seal folk who are mentioned as living out in the ocean. And Corinna is unusual in several ways, not just that she is, you know, a girl disguising herself as a boy so she can tame evil creatures and live underground, which is pretty unusual. Very she unusual. Has lots of like very silver, fine blonde hair that grows unnaturally fast. I believe at one point she says it grows an inch per night which is definitely quite a lot more than the average human. Yeah, and you know, it's pretty inconvenient considering her whole thing is she's trying to disguise herself as a guy. And also, you know, regular humans don't have hair that grows that fast. But um, she also has like this weird kind of internal clock when she can tell exactly what time it is without looking, she just instinctively knows it. And she also um, kind of has this just like general unsteadiness to herself. She feels like she, is worse at navigating the world than other people, despite having this like internal clock. She's not very good at walking and she kind of has this like weird instability. Yes, quite a lot of YA heroines have the trait of being clumsy, which I feel like is kind of a way to make themselves seem more relatable to the reader. But in Corinna's case, she genuinely does feel like she moves through the world differently than other people. And there's some kind of sense that she's missing. And so she mentions that a lot that she'll bump into chairs or fall down and she doesn't know why. So um, as Corinna kind of gets used to life at um, Cliff's End and settles into her role as the folk keeper, which I should mention the reason that they need a new folk keeper is because their previous folk keeper, I think, wandered down to the tunnels and like 
kind of went mad and they're looking for a new one, which is pretty dark. Um, this yes, book he like, meets him a few times and his descriptions of the folk uh, were very scary. Yeah, so as Corinna kind of settles into life, um, sort of gets to know the dynamics at um, Cliff's End, there's a lot of like sort of upper class drama that's happening around her, I would say, because the man that she meets who invites her to come work there croaks like immediately and oh, like immediately after she like meets. literally during the like job offer scene in the first scene of the book this is not a spoiler but if you were worried about spoilers why are you listening um he dies but she's invited anyway and her kind of bosses i guess are lady alicia um and good god the guy's name the evil one the evil one thank you for spoiling us lulu um yes, lady alicia was married to the man that gives Corinna the job offer. She is his second wife, not his first, which is quite important later on. Yeah, and she has a son named Finian, who's rather a bit older than Corinna, um, which we'll get into in a minute. So Corinna kind of settles into this and realizes there's sort of some family tension. There's also, um, is his name Sir Andrew? <laughs> you have the copy of the book, Lulu. Believe it or not, I just have no brain. Um, Oh my god, it's Sir Edward. I was thinking of Sir Andrew from Twelfth Night, which is simply not what this <laughs> is about at all. A uh, slightly less harmful uh, nobleman hanging around a fancy house, I believe. Yeah, sorry, Sir Andrew. Didn't mean to slander you like that. But anyway, um, she kind of becomes aware of sort of this tension, especially regarding the previous wife. And um, also the fact that Sir Edward uh, very much wants to inherit the estate, and his plan to do this is to marry Lady Alicia, the widow of the last owner, and become ruler of the estate, but Lady Alicia doesn't like him very much. So there's quite a lot of uh, tension in the household about who is going to inherit the estate of Cliff's End. Yeah, so, well, also Corinna is kind of trying to keep the secret of um, her actual gender, as well as she's becoming closer to Finian, who's the heir of Cliff's End, and also dealing with the folk. There's sort of these like multiple layers of conflict and tension within the house, which I liked. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't- Things get really gothic, and then the Selkies come in. Yeah, so as it turns out, the first wife of the previous deceased lord of Cliff's End was a woman named Lady Rona, who was one of the seal folk, and he stole her skin away. Mary's traditional in many stories about Selkies, unfortunately, because men suck. <laughs> yeah, fictional mythological men often suck. So um, as is kind of traditional, this kind of story, he saw her by the sea was immediately taken with her stole her skin and married her and she was miserable but because she could, didn't have her skin she couldn't return to the sea there's um, a very creepy motif of this repeating line in the book that goes something like uh poor lady rona weep for her and it kind of emphasizes the way that like this woman was stolen away by this lord that fell madly in love with her but she doesn't want to be there she just wants to go back to the sea and because he controls her skin she can't yeah, and also Lady Rona had a child who was presumed to have died, and there was like a very small grave in the graveyard next to hers. Um, but people are, are very secretive kind of talking about her. But as it turns out, Corinna is not simply an orphan with no parentage. She is actually the daughter of Lady Rona and the previous Lord of Cliff's End, meaning that she is half still folk. And a lot of her strange traits, like her silver hair and her clumsiness on land, and her strange connection and, and ability to control the folk. And also her kind of like internal clock, especially relating to the tides and the ocean. 
um, result from the fact that she has seal folk heritage. And I remember I started reading the Folk Keeper when I was younger with no knowledge that there were Silkies. I had read Franny Billingsley's, I think maybe more well-known novel, um, which is called Chime. It was nominated for some awards. I don't remember at this moment. I had read it. Also in quite good. Yeah, that was quite interesting. Also has an interesting take on fairies from what I remember. But I had read Chime first and then sort of sought out her other books. I think she only has like three fiction books and a picture book. So yeah. I really came upon the Folk Keeper and I picked it up and started reading it without knowing there were Selkies. But as soon as we got to the part with the Selkies, I was like, ooh, 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 because I think Selkies are super interesting. They are interesting. And there's always kind of a tragic feel in their stories. And I love a good tragic mythology story. So it was interesting rereading this, knowing that Corinna is part of the seal folk and that her mother was a captive Selkie, because a lot of the very subtle foreshadowing about that becomes very clear on reread. This is like a really short book. Yeah, um, it's like 200 pages. Yeah, also mine has like absurdly large print, so it's like even smaller than that makes it seem. But I would say it's a book that uses language very carefully in that like a lot of scenes you look back on and you're like, oh, I see what that means. Oh, it was like, I see, it was foreshadowing. Um, so it's not apparent when you're first reading the book, I think that Corinna is half seal folk. But upon reread, it's like, oh my God, it's so obvious. And I thought it's really yeah, like There's one. this one anecdote that Lady Alicia shares with Corinna uh, that the Lord's first wife, Lady Rona, had very long, beautiful, silvery hair, and she could walk through a room blindfolded without walking into anything. And when you first are introduced to that anecdote, you kind of think, oh, this is a story about a beautiful, graceful woman. But upon reread, you realize that, first of all, Lady Rona's hair is beautiful and long and silvery because she has a selkie and it grows an inch every night. And secondly, as Corinna discovers later on in the story, um, for seal folk, their hair acts as like kind of, um, it allows them to sense the world around them. So the longer her hair gets, the more Corinna is able to see things until she's able to walk around through the caverns with the folk without any light and feel her way around. So it turns out that Lady Rona's uh, beautiful grace is actually something that Corinna has inherited because it's an inherent seal folk quality. Yeah, it was interesting. It is in some ways a very traditional Selkie story in that it involves a man who sucks stealing away a Selkie woman's skin and taking her for his wife, even though she's not particularly happy about it. But I think because you're not aware that it's a Selkie story at first, that adds a real interesting layer to it. And also it just had a very gothic feeling. I think it's because it added this like layer of it taking place in this like seaside mansion. And there's a lot of kind of aristocratic drama and okay, I haven't actually read Jane Eyre, but instead of having a wife in the attic, it kind of has a wife in the basement because Rona would spend a lot of time kind of locked away in the dark because she couldn't bear to see the ocean without being able to return to it. And it had a, so it had a really great atmosphere and it, it did feel like a little bit more gothic than I was remembering actually, which I quite liked. So I thought mm -hmm. it was interesting that in some ways it is a very traditional Selkie story, but it like plays with that. So you don't realize it's one at first. Like I would say it's a pretty big spoiler to say that there are Selkies in this book. And yeah, also, Rona herself doesn't find out that Lady Rona was a Selkie until fairly far into the book. Uh, until then, she thinks that simply this is a house with a lot of odd folk and that she herself has some strange abilities that are not able to be explained. Yeah, and it also adds like some specific aspects to Selkies that I think are not necessarily from the lore, like the ability to just like innately sense the tides, which makes sense, obviously, if you're 
a creature living in the ocean. And also like the hair thing, I think is unique to the story, but like it works really well. Yes, and there's also a part that I really liked where they talk about how many of the previous lords of Cliffsend have been really into hunting and they keep like trophies, like a stuffed head or a skin. And there's a lot of like hunting dogs around the manor and tying that into the story of how Lady Rona was literally hunted by her husband and her skin was taken as a prize by him worked, worked quite well as a theme to kind of emphasize how trapped and horrible it would have been for her to be hunted down by this man and made into his wife. Yeah, also I think it has a much sadder ending than many Selkie stories in some ways because the way a lot of them work is... I would disagree with that actually. I think it has a similar ending to a lot of Selkie stories. Well, I meant specifically for Rona, because she dies without ever returning to the ocean, whereas a lot of Selkie stories involve the Selkie finding her skin years later, and then just kind of returning to the ocean and leaving behind the human family she's cultivated. Though I would say the ending is like somewhat happier for Corinna. Yes, a lot of Selkie stories, uh, one of the reasons that I think they're so tragically interesting is because they always involve this theme of being drawn between two worlds. Uh, in this case, the world of the ocean and the world of the seals and the world of land and people. And Corinna, being the daughter of seal folk, is faced with that same choice. And she ends up choosing to stay on land um, and stay a human woman, which is not always the choice that Selkie women make in mythologies, but it does fall into the idea of having to pick between two worlds, which I always found tragically fascinating as a kid, and I still do today. Yeah, though I would say her choice is kind of her hand is almost forced because at the climax of the book someone attempts to burn the selkie skin that she was born with and it means that she would be unable to move between the two worlds like a selkie should um if she transformed into a seal her damaged seal skin would permanently trap her in that form um so she decides to return to land and finian um i did not personally love the romance in this book Primarily because neither did I. I feel like it had the potential to be good because I found Corona and Finian's interactions interesting, but I did have some reservations about it. Yeah, okay, so Finian and Corona kind of start off this almost bargain between them where Corona will offer him kind of words of advice and courage because folk keepers are often known to have this thing called the power of the last word where they can kind of use words and rhymes to fend off the folk. And Corinna claims to have it, even though she she doesn't actually, she lies a lot throughout the book and that's just one of the lies that she tells people. But Finian kind of wants her advice and her power. So they sort of make this deal that he will tell her secrets about the place she's living in exchange for her kind of power of the last word and advice. And um, they have sort of this like give and take dynamic which I did enjoy actually but I was really put off by the fact that Corinna is 15 when they meet and often described as people think she's a lot younger because she's yeah, like, she was able to pass as a 12 year old boy for most of the book I believe yeah I think she's pretending I can't remember I think she's pretending to be 15 but a lot of people remark on thinking that she's much younger um she turns 16 throughout the book I think mm -hmm. but Finian is 21 when she meets her and I was just like mm. I don't love this. I did not remember if there was a romance going in because I remember very little about the book. I wasn't super happy to, like, to get to the point where there was a romance and that ends up being pretty central to the end of the book because part of the reason Corinna decides to stay on land is because she has Finian as someone she would miss if she 
went and joined the seal folk permanently. So it's a, it's a fairly important part of the book. And I would also say that like sort of this general coming of age, shedding her male disguise, um, kind of- Accepting the selkie part of her. And also kind of like general coming of age, sexuality, romance aspects tied together mean that the romance is like a fairly, it's not a major part of the book, but I would say it ends up being pretty essential to the end. But I was just like, it's I know it's part of Corbett's character development, I believe. Yeah, no, it definitely was. But I was kind of like, did he have to be so old? And then you I guess have to do that. Also, like very technically, I guess they are step siblings, but yes, I was, he is the son of Lady Alicia who married uh, Corinna's father so they're not technically related but they are step siblings although neither of them are aware of this fact at the beginning of the book um yeah i'm not sure this book was published in the 90s maybe people were somewhat less bothered by age gap romances back then than they are now but um i didn't love it especially because like i am 19 and i would not date a 15 year old and i'm not even close to finian's age right now so yeah i was just like yeah didn't love that which is too bad because I, I didn't dislike their character interactions. It was mostly just that one detail where I was like, if I thought, if I stopped and thought about it, I was like, that's a little weird. If I had been 16 and dated a 21 year old, that'd be kind of odd though. Like, I know it's like, it is, I think actually explicitly set in our, in a, in a fantasy tinged version of our world because they reference the Bible, specifically the story of Samson um, because of the hair thing. And then later they reference Marie Antoinette, not by name, but it's obviously Marie Antoinette because they're going to a Halloween party and someone is dressed as like the doomed queen who told everyone to eat cake, which is like obviously Marie Antoinette. However, Finian is not the main character of this book and nor is the romance the main focus. The main focus is actually the gothic creepiness of living in a house that feels somewhat haunted by the fact that a very unhappy selkie woman once lived there and carved her name in the basement walls over and over again because she missed the sea so much. And that was kind of the main reason why I wanted to reread this book and why I still think about it, because I think it captures the way that Selkie stories are often very gothic and tragic quite well. Yeah, I don't know if I would say gothic necessarily about most Selkie stories, but they are very tragic um, and quite messed up. I liked that this didn't brush over how sad Selkie stories often are, especially um, near the end of the book, when Corinna gains the power of the last word at the climax and uses it against the folk, there is a scene where she kind of like recites the story of her mother's capture and marriage. And it really like drives home that this is not a happy story. This is about someone who's been shut off from the sea and consigned to the company of Lord, Mer Lord Merton, who's the husband. Um, so I really did like that it took the the bare bones elements of a Selkie story, which is a woman's seal skin being taken and her being forced into marriage, but then built this really unique framework around it that I did think was really interesting. Franny Billingsley does a lot of really interesting things with sort of like existing concepts and folklore and like vibes of stories that mesh together in a really interesting way. Yes, and I also liked the fact that the book is told in a epistolary format of Corona's diary because it kind of feels like she's telling you her secrets as she also uncovers the secrets of Cliff's End. And so it kind of feels like you're discovering this interwoven web of history and creepy magic within this house. However, not all media about Selkies involves a horribly messed up relationship between a Selkie and Wait. her husband. Okay, I did want to say one last thing that 
I have always been amused by reading this book is that Lady Rona's name is presumably um, a feminine version of the Irish name Ronan, which means little seal. And I think that is what initially tipped me off to this being a Selkie story. As soon as they mentioned her name, I was like, oh my God, she's a Selkie, isn't she? And I was- wow, nerd. Which goes to say that if you know the etymology of Irish names, you too can undercover plot twists before they are twisted. Um, but anyway, back to what you were saying. Uh, yes, anyway. Um, a, another piece of Selkie media that does not involve an inherently messed up relationship between a Selkie and her husband, although it does have some tragic elements, is the movie Song of the Sea. Song of the Sea is an animated children's movie made by the same studio which made Wolfwalkers, which came out recently and has been pretty popular, so you might have heard of that. They've done a few movies, including several that are inspired by Irish mythology, and Song of the Sea is one of them. It's about a boy named Ben, whose sister Saoirse is a Selkie, as well as his mother, and Ben hates Saoirse because he is a 10-year-old boy and sometimes that's what they do to their sisters, but also because on the night she was born, his mother disappeared and never came back. And he doesn't really know why. He also doesn't know why Saoirse never talks. She's about uh, six years old when this movie takes place, I think, and she's never spoken and nobody in his family knows why. And over the course of the movie, Ben and Saoirse kind of go on this adventure throughout Ireland, interacting with various mythological creatures and fairies, and they discover the secret of what happened the night Saoirse was born, and that Saoirse is a Selkie who is destined to play the Song of the Sea and kind of save the fading magic of Ireland. It's a very beautifully animated movie, like all of Cartoon Salon's movies. It's 2D animation, unlike more popular studios like Disney, and it looks kind of like watercolors. It's so gorgeous that every time I've watched this movie and I've seen it twice, I immediately want posters of every single scene to hang in my room. And I think that's a really good format for a fantasy movie because it gives every scene, even the ones set in ordinary places like lighthouses or cars or townhouses, this very beautiful magical feel. Um, and the main point of the story is kind of it doesn't really have a villain. It's more about grief and Ben's grief over his mother's disappearance and the fact that he blames his sister Saoirse for her being gone. And over the course of the story, the two siblings kind of become a bit closer, except at the end, they are forced with the choice that so many Selkie stories have of having to choose between the magical world and the human world. Yeah, I recently saw this movie for the first time. You introduced it to me. And it was so pretty, my gosh, like 2D animation when done right is just so gorgeous. Um, I had heard it kind of tossed around before, but hadn't seen it because I'm bad at getting around to watching movies, but I'm very glad I did because it was gorgeous. Um, I did in fact manage to partially persuade you to watch this movie by saying that it has the song Dulamon, which is an Irish folk song about seaweed, which for some reason played a very large part of our middle school obsession with Irish music. Okay, yeah, you were also like, it has the Dulamon song. And I was like, oh yeah, let's go. Um, because I do like some Irish folk music. But yeah, it was very pretty. A lot of, well, not a lot of, but um, at the start of the movie, Saoirse, Ben, and their father are living in a lighthouse by the ocean. So there's some very nice, landscape stuff and there's also quite a lot of like travel through the Irish countryside that's really pretty and just like very gorgeously animated 
Um, it also does this interesting thing of exploring these little pockets of magic that remain in Ireland, despite it being modern day times, uh, such as Ben and Saoirse encounter a group of fairies that live in a traffic circle, uh, or they'll be going through a forest and suddenly encounter like a cottage with a portal to a strange fairy who can remember all the stories that have ever been. And I really liked that because it's kind of a story of magic going away in modern times, but it's also a story about this family that has magic that's like integral to them. And it kind of has to explore how the disappearance of magic is kind of leading to an inherent tragedy in their family. Because Saoirse has to play the Song of the Sea in order to save all magical fairies. But at the end of the movie, they find out that in order to do this, they have to go away and go to Lulu, you're the Irish nerd. What's the name of the fairyland in Irish mythology? Um, Tiernanog. Irish people, if I'm saying that wrong, please correct me, but I believe it is Tiernanog, which is like the land of youth, sort of the fairyland. Yes, Tiernanog. Uh, so at the end, Saoirse plays the Song of the Sea, which is this gorgeous piece of music that she plays by blowing on a shell. And it's just gorgeous, like all of the soundtrack in this movie is. But they realize that uh, because Saoirse is a Selkie, she has to pick between staying in the human world with her brother and her father and going to Tiernanog with her mother, which kind of plays again once into uh, once again into the idea that Selkie stories are about the inherent tragedy of having to pick between two worlds. Yeah, especially at the end. That is that is literally kind of the central climactic moment as they're all like being raptured up to Tiernanog. It came off as like very religious to me. I don't know if it was supposed to, but there's like a lot of yeah. like golden I'm not light. I'm sure about that because it's kind of more, you know, it's pagan religion with like Selkies and Tiernanog, but then it got a little bit religious at the end. Well, I mean, Selkies aren't like a religion. They're part of folklore. They're obviously like words like religion and folklore and mythology all have like really loaded histories as to how you put what yeah. But Selkies are not really like inherently religious, um, but it did give me kind of religious vibes at the end because like there's this sort of golden light and everyone's like rising up and I was like, oh my God, they're being raptured. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it then does lead to the single saddest line in the movie, which is when Saoirse is reunited with her mother uh, for the first time in her entire life because her mother disappeared the night she was born. And her mom was like, Saoirse, you have to choose between the human world and coming with me and Saoirse says mom I want to stay with them meaning her brother and her father and like I almost did start crying at that part because throughout the movie you've seen how much their mother's absence has changed their family that um their father goes and drinks at the pub on the anniversary of Saoirse's birthday and that Ben really resents her because of her absence which isn't something that's explored as much in Selkie stories Usually it ends as soon as the woman goes back to the ocean. Uh, but in this case, we did see their life without their mother. And you kind of get the feeling that maybe they're going to all be re reunited as a family again. And then you're struck with the choice, the, the idea that they actually do have to make a choice. And that either way, there's going to be something bittersweet about it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's really a movie about grief in so many ways, because Saoirse and Ben don't really know their mother is alive out there with the Selkies. I don't think the dad does either. He just knows that she vanished. And yeah, yeah a lot of their life has been shaped by like the absence of his mother. And there's also this um, story that goes alongside it 
of this giant who was crying and crying and crying and was so sad that someone turned him to stone and became a mountain so it would like heal his grief and there's also this witch lady that the kids encounter sort of on their quest across the Irish countryside who like literally bottles up her emotions in bottles so she doesn't have to feel um, and she tells Ben that she can do this for him and that he won't have to feel anything ever again and so the whole movie kind of turns into this like it's about healthy coping mechanisms for grief really yeah what I thought was really interesting was that Ben and Saoirse's grandmother is kind of this antagonistic force towards them and that she like swoops in and is like I don't think these children should be living in a lighthouse they should come live with me in the city and she takes them away from the father um and then the plot of the movie is them kind of trying to return to the sea but obviously they're like two children who are trying to get across the countryside without a car or an adult um running into various ferries along the way but the grandmother like ultimately isn't really a bad person she also just kind of wants the best for them and knows that their life has been really profoundly shaped by the loss of their mother and kind of wants to give them like a normal well-adjusted childhood with someone who's looking out for them but she's doing it in a kind of misguided way and their father is he seems like a, a lovely guy but he's also seems like he's been kind of wrecked by the loss of his wife like on the anniversary of her death slash his daughter's birthday he like goes out and drinks in a pub and we kind of get the sense he's never moved on um he just kind of lives by the ocean and like is raising his kids so it really ends up being a story about losing someone which is interesting because like you said so many selfie stories end with the mother returning to the ocean but it also is slightly different than those stories because the love between the selkie mom and the human dad seems to be like genuine she i don't think he stole her selkie skin away i think they they genuinely seem to love each other and want to raise a family together it's not like incredibly clear why she had to leave to go back to the ocean in the first place i assumed it was that like something was wrong with her pregnancy or something and the only way she could survive was by going back to the ocean yeah but that's what i assumed as well but it's a kids movie so they might not have been able to be very explicit about that yeah but um so she never got a, set, a chance to say goodbye to him though so she leaves abruptly in the middle of the night and he finds his daughter like washed up um alone and the rest of his life and these children's lives up to the point of the movie is like really shaped by the loss of their mother which is super interesting because in a lot of Selkie stories, um, the fisherman or the whatever his career is, usually his fisherman, captures the Selkie, has children with her, and then years later she discovers her seal skin and just dives back into the ocean, leaving the children behind. And we never really delve into like what it would necessarily mean for the children to have a mother who's returned to the ocean and presumably not coming back. But the movie starts off with the point of the mother having left, leaving behind two children and explores the aftermath of that but the family dynamic is like really different and that they did have a good life and if the mother had stayed with them they seemingly would have been a happy family which is not necessarily the case for most selfie stories because like stealing yeah. someone's skin and forcing them to live on land with you is like really not the basis of a healthy relationship which like should go without saying but like yeah however um over the course of this movie as ben and sirsha try to travel back from their grandmother's house in town to back to the ocean because without her seal skin in the ocean, Saoirse is becoming incredibly sick and will die. And she also needs to perform the Song of the Sea in order to save the magical creatures. Um, over the course of the movie, the two siblings um, begin to get along a lot better and Ben is able to let go of his anger towards Saoirse. And uh, they also encounter the 
witch that bottles up her emotions. So the movie kind of functions as like a way for the characters to work through their grief over their mother's disappearance. So by the end of the movie, when they do encounter her and Saoirse has to make this choice, the family has kind of reached a point where the mother has to go away again, but the remaining family members are more secure in their love for each other. And so they're able to go on without her and without the magic. Yeah, so I, know, I think it was very sad that this movie is one of those the magic goes away stories because I'm a bit more fan of like the magic comes back. But I think it was kind of fitting for the story because the end point is their mother leaving forever and she kind of takes all the magic with her. Yeah, so it's a very bittersweet ending, but you know the characters are in somewhat of a better state than they started the movie out in, but they've still lost their mother after having gotten her back again for just like the briefest amount of time, which is really sad. It was, yeah, it's quite a bittersweet ending, but bittersweet in a different way than many traditional selfie stories are, which I found really interesting. Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons why I liked the movie so much, because it's more about familial love than kidnapping a random lady to make her your wife. Yeah, also I thought it was quite interesting that Ben is not a Selkie, even though his mother is. And you can sort of tell that they've animated him to look more like his father. They have the same hair color and eye color, whereas Sirsha looks more like their mother and is a Selkie like her. Because traditionally the Selkies that are stolen away, and I feel like a lot of stories are women, but there are presumably male Selkies because- Yes, there are. I've actually read a few other books that have male Selkies. Like, can I bring up a third topic or- you know, I think we've talked the movie All right. as much as um, we can. I will say that another book about Selkies, which I have read, is Tides by Betsy Cornwell, which does feature some male Selkies, and also an extremely good uh, romance between two characters that does not revolve around anyone getting kidnapped. I mean, if you could take it away and talk about Tides, which I read quite a while ago, but you read more recently after the movie put you in a Selkie mood. Yes, I feel like it Tides, which is by Betsy Cornwell, who also wrote some books like Mechanica, um, is another slightly untraditional Selkie story because the main character is this boy called Noah who goes to live on an island off the coast of New England with his grandmother and his sister for the summer. And he's a marine biologist who wants to do an internship with this famous scientist. And while he's on the island, he encounters this group of Selkies, including this girl called Mara and her brother Ronan, who is presumably named Ronan because of, as you said, the little seal name meaning in Irish. Uh, he encounters these group of Selkies. Um, but it's a somewhat untraditional Selkie story because although Noah does have a romance with the Selkie girl Mara, his grandmother, whose name is Jen, also has a relationship with one of the um, older Selkies, whose name is Maeve. And I thought that was really nice because it kind of subverts the expectation that Selkie stories are about bad men kidnapping women to marry them because Maeve and Jem are like these grandmother aged women who have uh, children and grandchildren of their own, but they're in like this very happy loving relationship. And Jem is a lighthouse keeper and Maeve is a Selkie who lives in the nearby ocean. And they just come and Maeve stays at Jem's house sometimes. And it's just a very nice relationship, um, which I thought was, cool because there aren't a lot of like older FF couples in fiction 
at least in YA fiction that I've encountered. And it was also kind of a nice subversion of the idea that Selkie stories have to be uh, inherently tragic in some form because Maeve and Jem are just in this happy long-term relationship. And the main character being a marine biologist also introduces an interesting new take on the kidnapping Selkies because it um, goes into the idea that maybe scientists want to kidnap Selkies to experiment on them and see how their powers work, which is kind of a new and more modern take on the story. Um, so Tides is by Betsy Cornwell. It's um, also a Selkie story and it's a little bit different than like more old fashioned stories because it takes place in modern day times and features different relationships. But I also thought it was really interesting because um, the characters in Tides are kind of aware of past Selkie stories. And like at first, Mara is afraid of having a relationship with Noah because she's afraid that he's going to steal her skin. And they kind of learn to trust each other and then fight back against the evil scientists. So it's just a very nice, lovely story with lots of wonderful descriptions of the ocean around New England, which I personally liked because I grew up around the New England ocean. Um, and that's really my thoughts on Ties. I just felt like it was a bit relevant to the idea of a slightly untraditional Selkie love story. Yeah, I really liked um, the aspect of the grandmother Selkies being in love. I thought it was just really sweet. And there aren't like, especially in young adult fiction, there aren't like, a lot of older LGBTQ characters. So I like that like the the grandmothers kind of had a bit of a rocky relationship at points, but like during the story, they're like in love and they're just an older couple who were nice. I thought that was really sweet and I liked it. Also, I thought it was interesting that it's a Selkie story that does not take place in the UK because um, Selkies are pretty traditionally from like Scottish and Irish folklore. And the folk keeper is set in like kind of pseudo England. I don't think they ever say it's England, but like I assumed it was. Well, and also Song of the Sea is set like explicitly in Ireland, but Tides is set in America, which I thought was interesting. There isn't really like an explanation for how they came to be here, but like, you know, there are seals off the coast of New England. So I think it's mainly because the author herself is from New England and presumably lived by the sea at some point. Oh yeah, I liked it. I thought it was interesting. Um, I have not read this book for quite a while, but um, I do remember liking its take on Selkies and thinking it was interesting. And also the thing you said about Selkie stories often being about being stuck between two worlds, I thought was particularly interesting with the one of the grandmother characters who is bisexual and had a relationship with a female Selkie and then married a male human and then he died and she got back together with a female Selkie. And I just thought it was an interesting metaphor for like moving between worlds, both like magically and like romantically, which I couldn't read too much into, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Anyway, Tides, a gay selkie book about nice relationships. To be fair, it's not like centrally the gay selkies because they're the grandparents, but they're my favorite characters. No, but they do have their own perspectives and their love story turns up in flashbacks. Yeah, I like them quite a bit. I haven't read this book for a while, but I have like pretty fond memories of it. Anyway, now that you have let me go on a several minute tangent about a book that was not originally scheduled to be talked about. Yeah, so I think it's quite interesting though that I think a lot of modern Selkie stories don't necessarily have the kidnapped forced marriage aspect. I think 
the Folk Keeper does, but it's not the main character's perspective, which I thought was interesting. It's sort of about the aftermath of that, which I think is a very interesting take on like a very common archetype. Yes, exactly. Whereas in Tides, the relationship is also just like happy and consensual. Um, and then in Song of the Sea, the relationship is happy, but has problems, but they're not the usual problems. And the focus is on the children that resulted from the marriage rather than the romance itself. I also think the um, mythological origin of Selkies is quite interesting. I did some research on this a while ago because I was posed the question, are Selkies cryptids? And I was like, you know what? I don't know if they're cryptids, um, which I wouldn't really put them in the same category as like Bigfoot because no one's running around faking evidence for Selkies. But what I learned was that um, I think in the Orkney Isles, some people were born with these sort of like weird genetic thing where they would have um, kind of skin between their fingers that would look a little bit like flippers. And people came up with the explanation being like, oh, you must have had a selkie somewhere in your family to explain why you're like that. Which I think when you think about it in terms of the real world and how that might have inspired the story of a selkie having children with human men and then leaving, that becomes quite interesting because you're like, oh, it's inspired by trying to explain an actual phenomenon and you're like well it could be the aftermath of this magical thing so then it's interesting that a lot of selkie stories that we encounter are about the aftermath of a relationship with a human and a selkie because that might have been what people mm -hmm. were considering when they thought about selkies which i think is quite interesting wow i did not know that um but i guess if i ever go to the orkney isles i will look out and see if i see anyone with flippers or webs between their fingers Well, I, Orkney people, please don't be offended if this was incorrect. Um, Wikipedia may have lied to me, but I thought it was quite interesting that ultimately the stories often end up being about the aftermath of a relationship between a human and a selkie. Um, that being said, guys, if you're listening to this podcast, please don't kidnap strange women and steal their sealskins. It will not end well for you or your children. At some point, you'll just be stuck with a bunch of half selkie children and your wife will be out chilling in the harbor. I and mean, you know what? That seems like a pretty solid note to end the podcast on. Yeah. Um, that we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, on Twitter at nevertwinscast, or shoot us an email at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com.